I was quite superstitious, so I tend to have the, the same spot on the bus. I clearly remember to this day, this like bank of lads in, in white shorts and white tops on the left-hand side. And as we pulled off, they all sort of started waving. And I remember, um, I remember waving, you know, sort of momentarily at them. And at that point, when they think they realised that they sort of gained the attention, that they they all turned round and on the back, basically, they turned round, mooned the bus, and on their asses they had "Go You Aussie," which, which I thought was absolute genius because I was like, "You have properly conned me into uh, into like engaging me there, and then and then done me in the eye." But it was things like that, to be honest, just added to to serve for extra motivation, you know, as you as you go in towards the stadium. You're listening to England Rugby Untold 2003 Rugby World Cup. Hi, I'm Lewis Moody, former England Lions, Leicester and Bath flanker. And in 2003, I had the privilege of winning the World Cup. It seems so long ago now. Sometimes it's hard to separate reality from, from the stories, but... If, in terms of pre-season, I remember it being horrendous in a positive way. You know, it was all about fitness. You know, it was such a rigorous, brutal um, training camp. You know, I remember the, the amount of sessions we had necessitated having to have breaks during the day when we could sleep so that we could then be sort of fresh to go again in the in the afternoon. Um, you know, there was one in particular that I remember. It was it was sort of a team event, and you were split off into into different groups. You had sort of a rowing challenge as a team. Then you had a you might have had like a football ball control game, which was quite entertaining for some of the you know forwards and myself included, who you know who maybe struggled to catch their own kick a football at their feet. But um, and then you had this loop of the of the pitch at Penny Hill, which was which was a lactate. Um, exercise. So it was basically two flat out sprints. So having done this whole morning of fitness, you know, going flat out, health leather on the rowing machines against each other. I think I was in a group with Julian White, Danny Grucock, and maybe Andy Titterall. The competitiveness of the, you know, us four, so you're on, next person's in. Um, you're going flat out for the minute that you're on for as long as you can, and you're all next to each other in groups. So you, you can see what everyone else is on and the level of competition. And if someone wasn't pulling their weight, you know, there was, there was some real sort of um, you know, choice language and stuff coming in, right, get him out, get him out, next one in. And um, it, it was incredible to be a part of because you knew, I think at that point, how important it was in your own career to be a part of this squad because we knew we were capable of achieving some really incredible things. So the level of, you know, drive, commitment, pushing yourselves in training went through the roof. And this, this one sort of finisher, I'd call it, at the end of the session, which seemed to go on forever, um, was two, two or three laps of the pitch, basically, flat out. You just had to sprint as far as you could for a minute. It's all well and good sprinting. I don't know if you've ever tried to sprint flat out for a minute, but you get going, you're feeling good. And then all of a sudden, the sort of, the lactic kicks in. And I remember guys like Johnny Wilkinson and Joe Worsley led the way. You know, they were super fit at that time. And there was a guy called Jamie Noon and a couple of others 
who tried to keep up. And I just remember seeing Jamie Noon ahead of everyone, everyone, and then all of a sudden, boom, it's like a concrete wall came up and chopped him down. And we then, so at the end of that first minute, so literally sort of jogging by the end of it, trying to get to it, you sit, you had to sit down for three minutes. So just to pull all your lactic. And then you had to get up and do it again. And literally some people could barely walk. It was, it was incredible. But at the end of what was probably three or four hours of fitness already, then it was straight in the ice baths. And I just, um, you know, I, I remember it being brutal, but I remember, I remember enjoying it through the level of sort of competition that it, it pushed us to as individuals and as like small collective group. I'm Phil Lauder, former England defensive coach. One of the things that had really impressed me in the preparation before we flew to Australia was the conditioning that they did. The conditioning that our guys did in a three-week spell before we flew over to Australia was scary. Not only were they working so hard themselves, they were working hard in groups and they were encouraging one another and nobody would give in. And it was an unbelievable experience for me watching that. So I thought, we're going to come back with the cup. We weren't arrogant, not arrogant at all, but we're very confident that the team couldn't have been prepared better. And we were ranked number one in the world. Nobody's going to beat this lot. My recollection of how I felt at that time was that there was an expectation irrelevant of score in any given game. Bearing in mind, I was chasing for a test spot at this point, you know, in, in 2002, 2001, I made my debut. 2002, I, I got a starting place and then injury sort of um, scuppered that. So I was back into fighting for my place in the squad. And I, I still remember going into those games feeling like whatever the score, behind a head, we, would, we wouldn't lose. We'd come out on the right side of it. So there was a, a real inner belief within the squad. I think it was forged in the training grounds. You know, we had Phil Larder, who was a brilliant defence coach, who really sort of changed the way England defended. He structured, he created that sort of process and structure about, you know, one line and, and individual roles around the breakdown. The defence sessions that we had, they, I mean, they weren't for hours. You wouldn't see anything like it now. It was like two or three hours at a time if it wasn't going well. And it was full on, you know, you would be you would be battering each other. And I think a lot of the psyche was around the guys that you're training against are gonna be better than anyone you're gonna play in the World Cup. So if we can dominate these guys, then we will in theory be able to dominate anyone out there. Um and you know, some of that was bravado and all that sort of stuff but a lot of it came to fruition you know we look at the results in the summer that summer tour when we held New Zealand with you know six men in the scrum and here is the yellow card it's just a question who gets it oh you know who's got it Neil back and they give a penalty away and this could be further problems here oh if it's another Simbin England down to 13 it is Professional foul. And now Neil Back is out of the sim bin. And his mates have done a wonderful job. Tell you what, Wellington was silenced then. That was a magnificent sequence from England. It may seem 
slightly arrogant, but there was so much belief in that side at that time. But that, that's, I suppose, what I remember. I remember being in the games, never believing that we'd lose during that sort of two or three year window. Even, you know, when things went slightly tits up in the, in the quarterfinal against Wales and, and we were nervous and things were falling, you know, seemingly falling apart. I don't think there was ever any belief or fear that we would lose that game in the players' minds. Waiting for the squad announcement felt awful um, because you just, well, in a position that I was in, you know, maybe some of the lads were comfortable, you know, the John O's, the Wilkinsons, the Delalio backs, etc. But, you know, for me, coming off the back of an injury, a long injury as well, been out for ages, um, it was really nerve-wracking and it wasn't just one, it wasn't just one point where you're nervous. There's like three different cuts. But I was I was walking through when that last when that last call was made, Clive said he'd call everyone. Um, so I was in my head prepared for a phone call and I was with Annie and we're walking around and a text message pinged through and I just opened it and it was a list of names and I didn't understand at the time. I was just sort of scrolling through it. Like, what is this? And it was, you know, we'd been we'd been messaged that we were in. It was the biggest moment in your in your career because we knew we were capable of. We knew we were capable, honestly. We were, you know, we knew we were capable of playing in that World Cup final because we, we'd beaten everyone, everyone over two years. Well, the main the main threat to the Wallabies tonight will be the six, seven, and eight of England: Hill, Back, and Delalio. They boast 173 caps between them, big, strong, and they'll be looking to turn over Australia's ball at the breakdown. In the backs, Johnny Wilkinson, what an outstanding player he'll be. He can kick left and right foot, and for me, he's the best player in the world at the moment. The player I'm really looking forward to seeing tonight is Jason Robinson. He'll relish the firm conditions tonight under the roof, firm pitch, and his clash with Joe Roth is what I'm really looking forward to. The, I suppose the triumvirate, triumvirate, tricky word to say, that were, you know, Backy, Lol, and, and Hilly, they, they were the established you know, they were also some heroes of mine, you know, as a kid growing up watching England rugby. And to think that I was suddenly, A, mixing it with those, but also had been picked to start ahead of Bakian Delalio in, in in the Autumn Internationals and the Six Nations of, of O2. Um, there was an opportunity here for me to bring something slightly different. You know, I was probably a bit quicker than those three at the time. They were, you know, a, a, a reasonable reasonable few years older than me um so I suppose once I once I squeaked into the into the squad I felt that I would do everything within my sort of capability to make sure that I held on to it you know the opportunities arose Hilly got injured you know did his hammy during the course of that so I suppose probably the most nervous I'd ever been before a game that game against South Africa because in the build-up so that pool game against South Africa in the build-up to um through pre-season through all the camps through all the talk and the chat it was about that game they don't get bigger than this do they it's massive John it's the biggest game of the World Cup so far it's got all the ingredients two good matches the last game England-South Africa very violent game of course four years ago South Africa knocked out of the World Cup well Clive Woodward was worried about the narrowness of that tunnel everybody seems under control the others were really pretty irrelevant it was about South Africa and that was all really that we focused on prior to the World Cup because we knew if we beat South Africa we wouldn't end up facing New Zealand we'd have a you know we'd have the the run that we had to the final ultimately and we knew we'd be able to beat Australia so getting the call 
I think it was Wednesday. So Hilly twinged a, pinged a hammy early start of the week. And I didn't think anything of it. I, I just didn't cross my mind that he wouldn't be fit to start that game. And then I got a call from Clive. I think it was, it was a Wednesday afternoon, might have been a Thursday afternoon, whenever our day off was. And we were wandering through the streets with Benny Cohen, Tomo, Joe Worsley. We had a little routine where we went around at that time trying to find the best coffee house or the best vanilla milkshake establishment. <laughs> but yeah, we were wandering around, you know, trying to find a, another vanilla milkshake. And Clive called me, he said, you're going to be starting. I just remember, I, I remember being there in the street with the lads, not saying anything to anyone else. And just like, yeah. all of a sudden it like sort of dawned on me because that was like a World Cup final in itself in that pool game in that pool stage because we we just focused on everything being that so knowing that I had to come out and deliver in that game um, that suddenly put the heebie-jeebies up me I, you know I won't lie but you know what an experience and then it, it turned out right in the end it actually wasn't my best game I didn't they gave away a couple of uh, gave away an early penalty for a high shot but contributed to sort of the game changing moment which was which was nice Take a Schmidt has certainly hit his straps as soon as he's come on, and that's so important. Another great throw that time to Smith at the back. Flicker. Good. Charged down wonderfully. This could be the breakthrough. That was Lewis Moody who charged it down. And the try goes to Will Greenwood. Well, a fantastic effort by the Leicester flanker, Lewis Moody. Got through, put the pressure on to Louis Kuhn. And the end result, the 28th try for Will Greenwood in an England jersey. Well, you can feel the relief around the stadium of the England supporters at last. Bit of a gap between the two teams. Wonderful charge down from Moody. Terrific back row play. Uh, Greenwood, all he's got to do is control it with his first kick. He does that. Scores a try at the same spot where he had the horror moment of the first half. <laughs> he's liking it now. Stories that you might not have heard. So when we were in the physio room, so Paskey and Barney, that he had an eclectic music taste. You'd go in the physio room and all the different players would bring in their different music selections. Paskey often got you know, got the rule of the roost on uh, on the music. So T-Rex became a constant theme in, in the physio room. And I developed just a ridiculous love for, for T-Rex and children of the revolution. And it like, even to such a point, I'd be going to the games and like, the children of the revolution would be like sit, playing in my head. You know how music can connect you to a moment in time? Like whenever I hear that song, it connects me to being in the physio room with Phil Pask. And the, the reason for sharing that part of the story is very first game against Georgia in the warm-up, noticed that my foot was really sore whenever I tried to sprint. Never had any issues with it up until that point. And after the after the game, I saw the physios, they're like, yeah, yeah, we'll just ice it, Mo, but it just kept getting progressively worse. And it would go away and it'd be fine, then it'd come back and be gone. It actually looked like at one point I was, you know, potentially going to have to pull out. Thankfully, the X-ray and CT scan, no, the X-ray it was, MRI scan, showed nothing. So it just cracked on. So in my own head, it was like, okay, fine, there's nothing, we just we just go through it. And uh, and I got through the, the World Cup, you know, having to see the physios continually, which I'm sure no one will be surprised by. 
but the week after the World Cup final, so it might have been two weeks, we played uh, a home game and an away game. So Bath at home and then Stade Francais away. So we just won a World Cup, came back, played the week later, week, week after the final. And in a mall, one of the French players stood on my stood on my foot and I, I went from being fine to not being able to walk. And as it turned out, I'd had during that whole World Cup a hairline fracture in my uh, in my navicular bone in my foot. But because the scans didn't pick it up mentally, it didn't bother me. I could get through it. Um, and it was only when someone stood on it in that game. You know, anyone could have stood on it in training or in a match in the World Cup. But you know, there by the grace of God, did I make it through the World Cup? Because if if Kempi had found that stress fracture, the likelihood is you know, in the middle of the pool stages that I would, I probably would have had to go home. Well, the, the lads I tended to knock around with were, in, in downtime, were, were Julian White, Joe Worsley, Ben Cohen, Steve Thompson. And oh, actually, you know, I can include a story in here that probably will go into, you may or may not know, but after, after the pool stages... The boys were given carte blanche to go out and enjoy themselves, have a drink for the first time in three months. And I was with Tomo and Julian White, and all of a sudden, sort of gin and tonics started coming out. And I can't remember what what led to it. I'd probably, uh, I'd probably flicked them in the plums or something. But I remember, I remember Steve Thompson uppercutting me in the testicles, and uh, I was on all fours. And uh, and in the morning, we'd. You know, we'd we'd had a few drinks. We got in at a reasonable time. Clive was uh, and the team were, you know, rigorous around timings and, and never being late for anything. And and I may well have missed the next morning's training session had Tomo not woken me up. And uh, and I got the, remember the knock on the door in the morning, and it's like, oh god, I hadn't set my alarm for whatever reason, or the hotel and set it with the hotel. Um, yeah, so he sort of saved he saved my um, he saved my World Cup to some degree because I might have missed that meeting, which would have which would have not gone down well at all with uh, with Clive and uh, yeah. But so I tended to hang out with Tomo quite a lot, and uh, you know, much isn't normally quite a dangerous uh, individual to, to hang around with as, as we both were, as we both were, to be honest. Um, but yeah, it was it was one of those nice ones to reflect on when you know you've got through a, an incident and yeah. managed to sort of. You know, maneuver your way through it somehow, but um, you know, trying to figure out any any space or time with those individuals to surf. I remember going out with Julian White, Josh Lucy, Martin Corey, Benny Cohen, trying to trying to get some surfing in. I'd never surfed before, so it seemed like in you know Bondi Beach and all those famous surf places that we should go do it. And Josh even took his own surfboard out, actually. Sex wax and all that jazz. Me and Whitey were on the beach doing the sort of pop-up and <laughs> hit the position. And Josh was already sat in the sat in the waves, just sat on his board, you know, waiting for the right, yeah. the right surf to come in. And we we went out there. Me and me and Whitey were out there for ages. And Whitey quite often ended up looking like a sort of uh, <laughs> I don't know. Like a walrus getting rolled onto the onto the beach every time he tried to catch a wave, but Josh would still just be sat out there. And every time, I don't, I don't think he caught a single wave the entire time. Just loved looking good on his uh, on his surfboard. Yeah, I suppose bar that, I can't I can't really remember much else of uh, of what we got up to. To be honest, you know, it was in that sense it was pretty boring. We didn't go out. They had ribs and rump. Actually, that's a lie. The restaurant around the corner, so ribs and rump, which might still be there. It's the old green for continue eating, red for I've had enough. 
It was basically an all-you-could-eat barbecue. You imagine like 30 English rugby players and a guy called Dorian West and uh, or Jace Leonard and all those lads who could seriously put the food away. I mean, I can't imagine there was much left for anyone else after that. But you had like a bib. There's a great picture I've got somewhere of Julian and um, Dorian sat there with a bib around his neck, like half a cow in his hand, just chewing, chewing through it. But, you know, those evenings were, were quite nice, but you only had one of them a week. The rest of your time was was trying to figure out how you distract yourself from the, from what we were in, which was the biggest occasion of our lives. Well, look at the faces on this crowd. You mentioned before that there's probably a 60-40 split, but what the Australians have learned from when the British Lions were here not too long ago is they were taught by this English crowd on how to cheer. And it's going to be up in the terraces where we'll hear the chants coming. The big question is, will the 60% of the Aussies be able to drown out that loud 40% of the English? I remember leaving the team room, you know, the doors opening, and there was a huge sort of open spiral staircase that we worked our way down, and, you know, all the fans had been let into the foyer, it had been roped off, you know, so we wandered out onto the bus, you know, there was hundreds of English fans, you know, in the hotel. Um, You know, I remember in the morning we'd gone down and seen a few of the friends and people that had come along, some school friends had come out and getting on the bus, you know, you're, you're totally zoned out at that stage. I was quite superstitious, so I tend to have the, the same spot on the bus. And I remember getting in there, so I got to the back and I was on the left, three in from the back. And as we took off, I, I clearly remember to this day, this like bank of uh, lads in, in white shorts and white tops on the left-hand side. And as we pulled off, they all sort of started waving. And I remember looking up, you know, you do look around when you're in the in the van and take in sort of everything that's going on on the way to the stadium, get a bit of the atmosphere. And I remember um, I remember waving, you know, sort of momentarily at them. And at that point, when they think they realised that they sort of gained the attention, that they tur- they all turned round and they, on the back, basically, they turned round, mooned the bus, and on their asses they had Go You Aussie, <laughs> which, which I thought was absolute genius because I was like, you have properly conned me into, uh, <laughs> into like engaging me there and then, and then done me in the eye. But it was things like that, to be honest, just added to, to serve uh, extra motivation, you know, as, you, as you're going towards the stadium. The two best teams in world rugby, these players facing the biggest opportunity of their lives. Pre-game, feeling a sort of heightened state of anticipation far greater than I'd ever felt in my life. And, And in any of these situations, it only dissipates when you get in the change room and you're in your sort of comfort zone and then it only really dissipates fully when you get on the pitch. Um, I remember being in the tunnel. I remember being in the tunnel with Jono, and it was—you know—it felt like the tunnel went on forever as we were coming out. And just remember, you know, Jono sort of leading leading us out, and he said a couple of things. But actually, for the first time ever, he said very little. Often he'd get to the front, turn round, you know, where you're stopped by the media, he'd turn round and sort of unleash a torrent, you know, of you know information directed at how much he hated the opposition normally. And um, and actually, I just remember him turning around and saying nothing. I wonder whether he just thought, I don't need to say anything else. You know, we're here. What, what's more that I can say? No one's going to listen anyway, because everyone's just thinking, what we've got to get on with. Alden Flatley, he steps up again for the second time in this game to level it up. Straight as a day. 17-0. 
when the game is so close as it was and Elton and Johnny were kicking all those goals, you know, your mind sort of switches or it, it wants to play games with you. You know, it's such a powerful implement. And um, I remember it suddenly getting hold of me and going, you know, actually, do you want to be the person that comes on, you know, and gives away a penalty? You know, that's the sort of thing your, your, your inner being's trying to, it's the directions it's trying to pull you in. And then you spend the next sort of 15, 20, however long, but we went to extra time, so a long time fighting those gremlins. And then, you know, what well, as soon as literally as soon as you cross the white line, you you're in your comfort zone. And it was like, thank God for that. I'm sort of in the game now. And and then it was a case of making as big an impact in as short a space of time as you could. And you know, and, and that's what I, I tried to do. Five and a half minutes remaining in the second period of extra time. It's right out in front of the goalposts. There was a lot less stress than I think anyone ever imagines at that point, you know, because you're in the game, you're focused on what you're doing. It's about winning the little battles. And in the months leading up to the final, we rehearsed at the end of training, we rehearsed possible outcomes of finals. So needing to score from our own goal line, having to get Johnny in a position for a drop goal, you know, having to defend our goal line live against the against our own players' opposition again because they were going to be our hardest opposition. And I never felt any stress or nerves or anxiety about it, I don't think. Um, I do recall the other role. So my role from that line-out was to hold the width on the right-hand side. So if the Aussies congregated around the breakdown, then Johnny would have a plan B. You know, everything was really script that was scripted. Didn't mean it went to script, but it was scripted so that we knew what, what our roles were. And if you if you rewind that last few moments when I think it's actually when Backy passed it to Jono, you'll see me in the right hand bottom screen going just waving my hands because there was like a you know there was like a mile of room on that right hand side for a crossfield kick, which was Johnny's option B if he needed it. I'm probably quite you know there's probably a big part of me that's that's relieved he didn't try and kick it across actually because you know then then there's the pressure on and the ball will be in the air and you'll have that cricketers that fielding moment where the ball's in the air right got catches how do I get in a position as you're running flat out trying to dive for the corner not get tackled yeah so part of me was relieved it, it was him you know and he was the right person to to win that game for us anyway 35 seconds to go this is the one it's coming back for Johnny Wilkinson he drops for World Cup glory it's over! He's done it! Johnny Wilkinson is England's hero yet again! And there's no time for Australia to come back. England have just won the World Cup. Yeah, the environment in the changing room was was relaxed. It was loose. I don't really remember there being any music, and quite often we had lots of really loud music on. I remember really wanting to get photos, you know, some of which I've still got, and they're not great because obviously didn't have the video and all that jazz then. But um, you know, especially with some of the guys that hadn't hadn't played as well, you know, really wanting to make them feel like they'd been a part of it. You know, we had Harry. Harry came in. I remember, you know, he was getting us to sign various bits. I think we got him to sign something as well. Tessa Jow came in, and you know, I remember getting caught up in a little situation where we were trying to have a photo of the seven Leicester players who'd, who'd been a part of the World Cup squad with the trophy. And Tessa sort of nudged her way in. She'd obviously been manoeuvred in. She was the minister for sport at the time, I think, by some by some dignitary or some someone. And I just remember sort of 
politely in my mind asking her to you know just get out of the way because this is sort of our moment type thing i didn't really care it could have been you know prince william or anyone it was just about us it's not it felt like it shouldn't we don't need all these other people in there like this is this is what we've done and we want to celebrate it and enjoy it in the moment and uh and yeah if i i just certainly didn't intend to be rude to her if i if i was but some of the lads sort of fell about laughing is heading north over the equator Look out, number 10, Downing Street, Buckingham Palace. England will celebrate long and hard. How has being a World Cup winner changed my life? Um, well, we're still talking about the World Cup now, 20 years on. Um, so I suppose that gives you an indication of the importance with which it has impacted my life. Um, I think, do you know what, it's given me great happiness to have been. I think all I ever wanted to do in my sports career was be as good a player as I could be. I was physical, I was competitive, I wasn't, you know, wasn't violent or, or hard, although some may not believe that, but I would just, I loved the physicality. My, my natural, you know, sort of character traits are around loyalty and, and protection. And, and that's, I think, what I felt I could give to the team. Um, and I think the thing that stands out for me more than anything is that the, the, you know, the enjoyment that we still get when I see those guys, you know, the connection that you still have. Although, you, I don't, you know, if we haven't spoken to half of them for 10 years since the last reunion. And, and there's a sadness in that in itself, I suppose. And there's probably a good, uh, it's probably a good study in there for some psychologist as to why, you know, unless the lads have been having reunions without inviting me, obviously. I mean, that is a possibility. But, um, but yeah. So how has it changed my life? I, th I think it changed, certainly changed my life. Did it change it for the better? I think so. You know, I think I've been very fortunate in my life, the family I have now, the experiences I have. Probably a lot of those are off the back of the success we had as a team in, in 2003, where I find myself now. Does that mean that there weren't challenges off the back of it? Definitely not. <clears throat> because it, you know, there, there comes with it uh, an expectation that whatever you do then beyond rugby should be matched. Maybe in your own mind, not necessarily others, but your own interpretation of what should come next should be equal to, if not better than, what you've done. And the reality is, it never will be, not to the same degree. You know, I remember that that text message, you know, when it came through, and and I remember being able to chat to Clive at the tenth reunion and say, mate. Thanks for allowing me to be a part of something really unique and special. 